Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a new semi-regular segment of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Joining me here in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is noted lover of pencils, Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is Specgram's official matchmaker, Keith Slater. Hey, great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from an indoor jacuzzi spa in his palatial mansion in the Andes, Bill Spruill. Hey. Thanks for joining us. First up, let's hear some more lies, damn lies, and linguistics from Trey Jones. All right, guys, uh, I'll read you three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one of them is fiction, though the fictional one is based on something that is true. After I read them to you, each of you have to talk yourself into an answer, which will be right or wrong. When you're all done, I'll tell you more about each item, and uh, we can discuss uh, what you think about them. Uh, Like I said before, in earlier episodes, we'll keep score from podcast to podcast and see who's the most gullible. Right now, the (laughs) score after two episodes is one out of two all around. Oh, wow. First item. There are no known languages or cultures that do not practice motherese also called caregiver speech, though there may be individuals like me who refuse to engage in the revolting practice. (laughs) Number two, the Michif language of the Métis, who are mostly in Canada, is a combination, but not a Creole, of Native American Cree and Canadian French. In general, Michif noun phrase, phonology, the lexicon, the morphology, and syntax are derived from French, while the phonology, lexicon, morphology, and syntax for verb phrases is derived from Cree. Articles and adjectives are also in French, and the demonstratives are Cree. Interestingly, the nouns and verbs actually have different phonologies in the same language. And then our third item is that some Koreans believe that some of the difficulty they have in speaking English comes from having inflexible tongues. They solve for this by having the little connecting bit under their tongue surgically snipped. Keith? Well, okay, let's see. Uh, Take a shot at this. Uh, So two of these are true, and one is fiction. The first one, there are no known languages or cultures. Well, that's tough because we don't really know much about languages or cultures, so I'll have to come back to that after I consider the other ones. The Michif language is uh, known to be a mixture of French and Cree, but I'm going to say this one is false because they don't have two different phonologies, and if somebody described it that way, they were wrong. The Korean, some Koreans have had surgery done to help them to be better English speakers. Uh, that, that's probably true. And so there are no known languages or cultures that don't practice motherese. In spite of all the negatives in there, I'm going to go with that one as true. So I'm going to say number two, the uh, mischief language is the one which is false. All right. Thanks, Keith. Bill? Uh, let's see. On number one, I'm guessing there are probably cultures that don't spend an awful lot of time doing motherese or caregiver speech. I'm a little suspicious about number one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put that over on the side of where I think it might be false. Number two, same kind of logic as Keith, I think. I find it difficult to believe that a linguist could not figure out some underlying forms that would make All different forms have the same phonology, even if one form was simply an engine noise from a truck or something. (laughs) Number three, it says some Koreans believe that some of the difficulty they have in speaking English comes from having inflexible tongues. Logically, you would just need one Korean who believes that. And since there are a lot of people in Korea, I think number three is accurate because bound to be at least one. So that leaves me with one and two of those two. Just to be contrary, I'm going to say number one is the false one because I'm tempted to believe that someone would at least claim number two because it sounds 
impressive, and that would get you published. All right, David? All right, man. It, too bad. I was really hoping you were going to go with number two, because I thought I was going to jump out to a commanding lead in this competition. For number two, I actually borrowed for quite a while a book on Mitchie from the famous linguist Maria Polinsky. Now, of course, I didn't read it, but I certainly did glance at the front cover. And I know for a fact that somebody has claimed that it's, you know, it's basically described as a mixed language. I mean, who could resist claiming that one language has two different phonologies? That's, as Bill says, that's immediately publishable. So that one's true. And I also seem to recall having heard or perhaps read in a dream something about some Korean speaker somewhere believing that if you snip that awful little thing, you know, b- between your, your, your tongue and the bottom of your mouth, that it would help you to speak English better. And, and let's be honest, in the history of language, it's pretty common for people to mutilate themselves for pretty much ridiculous reasons. And I was thinking that it's, it'll help change their accent or make them more likely to fit in in higher society. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident that that one's true. And every single person, even you, Trey Jones, uses mother ease. Even just a little bit, perhaps just with cats, I'm going to say that one is absolutely false. <sighs> okay, so you've confused me there, David. I think you got I, the I, negatives backwards I think on I number have, one. Shoot, I think I may have been confused too. Can you read me number one again? Sure. There are no known languages or cultures that do not practice mother ease. Okay, there are no... So this, every every known language and cult- or culture does in fact do mother ease, which seemed to be what you were saying there at the end. Oh, you're kidding, really? Shoot. Every every language does mother ease. Oh yeah. Okay. No, Mi- no, no I got Mi- it. Chief is a mix of French and, and Cree. Right, right, right. And the Koreans snip their tongues. Oh shoot! Is it Cree? Oh, now you've got me confused. Okay, okay. Every language has mother ease. That's a fact. So okay, throw one out. Shoot. Now it comes to it. All right. I think I'm going to say three is the false one, and that it's not Korean. It's some other language group that I don't. I'm not aware of. Okay. Now I'm set. Okay. Uh, so I guess I. I I tricked you pretty good there, uh, David. You thought I was uh, so tricky last time. It wasn't nearly as tricky as you think. Uh-oh. Yeah, so I tricked you, David. Uh, number three is, in fact, true. It is the Koreans. It is true that people believe that the little thing under their tongue m- makes their tongues inflexible, and they do, in fact, get it snipped. Uh, it is not oh. true that they do have less inflexible tongues or that getting it snipped helps them speak English any better. But they do they do believe it, and they do have surgery. Number two the Michif language, uh, David had exactly the right information there. It's called a mixed language. It's pretty convincing, actually, if you, if you instead of just reading the cover of the book, you actually read the book. I have a book on Michif. It's pretty interesting. It seems that a bunch of French-speaking European fur traders got together with some Cree-speaking Native American ladies, and uh, nobody learned anybody else's language, so they ended, ended up making some Michif-speaking babies. They have polysynthetic verbs that are entirely Cree, and the nouns and adjectives are French and have French agreement. There's two different gender systems, so the nouns and adjectives have masculine-feminine distinction, while the Cree verbs have an animate-inanimate distinction. And there are a small number of mixed languages that this seems to be the best analysis for. Yep. Uh, so, in fact, number one is the one that is false. There are a few cultures where motherese or caregiver speech is not practiced. Typically, children are not deemed worthy to talk to adults, and they have to learn language on their own, a task at which they do just fine. <laughs> this is reportedly the case in Samoan, Walpiri, Kichi, Maya, Kaluli, and Javanese. 
And in my house, I did not use mother ease or caregiver speech or baby talk to my kids. I always talk to them in normal speech. I did avoid the 25 cent words when they were little, but now they have to fend for themselves. <laughs> but, but wouldn't that simply mean that you used caregiver speech, but your caregiver speech is exactly identical to your adult speech? I think there's a, the caregiver speech is sort of defined to be this, this, it has particular characteristics. So, no. Well, I think what you've showed here is something not about Michif, but rather about linguists. And that is that they're able to come up with an analysis that is utterly ridiculous. So I'm going to stick with my answer here in spite of the fact that the claim is that this is true. I insist that, in, in fact, in reality, it is not true. Watch out with that coffee. <laughs> These are my best pants. Hey, this coffee is hot. I, look, guys, I'm going to have to step out and change. All right, any of the rest of you got anything you want to say? Okay, yeah. First of all, I don't believe your answer. Everybody uses mother ease, and I know this is true because I believe it in my heart. You're lucky I don't have any more coffee. <laughs> all right, thanks, Trey. Uh, we've got some language news for you all, but first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. They don't know any better. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Uh, now for some language news. Two researchers from MIT, Noam Chomsky's Chamber of Horrors, have taken Linguistiana to task. Specifically, they take issue with linguists' acceptability judgments. Uh, that is, syntacticians sitting back, writing up a sentence and saying to themselves, eh, yeah, that's probably grammatical, and then treating that grammaticality judgment as hard evidence. These guys have the audacity to claim that bona fide linguists should be testing these grammaticality judgments to ensure that they're accurate. So just where do these guys get off, right? Well, I, t I tend to side with the corpus-based experimentalists. Right. And um, I, I didn't realize they were from MIT. Surprise, Chomsky hasn't had them drawn and quartered yet. I think there's a really big problem with syntacticians, especially sitting back and going, yeah, that's probably grammatical. No one's really accounted for the, the metalinguistics of studying syntax. The fact that after you hear a, a weird construction enough times, it starts to sound okay. Yeah, and every graduate student is familiar with that. Yeah, and so linguists in general and syntacticians specifically should be barred from making grammaticality judgments at all after, say, two undergrad courses. At that point, they're no longer naive native speakers. This is something I wonder, you know, having been through, you know, linguistics at the undergrad and the graduate level, can we safely say then that linguists, or at least let's let's stick with American linguists, are not actually real speakers of English any longer? Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, they're not speakers of naive English, syntactically naive English. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, also, sometimes they are fluent speakers of formal written English sometimes. So, for example, if you're making arguments about subject auxiliary inversion, your average syntactician is likely to jump in and start talking about auxiliary uh, inversion with adverbs of uh, low frequency, like seldom had I seen such a thing. I, I think a substantial portion of native English speakers, actual native English speakers, think that that sentence is ungrammatical. Certainly, if you give uh, a group of students something to look at with seldom had this happened, a bunch of those students will say that sentence is ungrammatical. Angrier have I never been. <laughs> it, but interestingly, you know, this, this goes back to the exposure idea. 
if you've been exposed to this construction a good bit, you're sitting there thinking, how could they think that's ungrammatical? This makes no sense. And then the student who just uh, in the margins of the test wrote something like, please take mercy on me for this, thus creating a construction that sounds a bit strange to the linguist reading it, is doing exactly the same thing. It's a construction that the students heard a good bit, so it's absolutely normal. If we went around playing a language game where we spoke English with verb final format, I think in a community, if you did that for very long, that would start sounding fine, too. Hmm. It would take some work, but you could probably do it. I think there are unfortunate people who get trapped at Star Wars conventions around Yoda impersonators that may end up... <laughs> Killing themselves? <laughs> well, you Killing know, someone else? It, it's, uh, some people go overboard with that kind of thing, and if you were trapped in a room full of them long enough, you would probably hear a lot of SOB verb constructions and VOS and whatever. I'm sorry, did you just say SOB verb constructions? SOV, SOB, I mean, there's a case to be made for an arc of phoneme at the end that allows both of those. There would be some meaning there. I'm not sure. I think I think I think you'd have the Yoda speakers doing the SOV and the non-Yoda speakers who are tired of them using the SOB constructions. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so that's true. So my theory is that studying linguistics damages your brain, and apparently so does watching Star Wars movies, and also damages your social life. Oh, damaged would we? <laughs> Maybe Star Wars and linguistics are actually underlyingly the same thing because start being a Star Wars a bit overly enthusiastic Star Wars fan also damages your social life. But going around and, and always asking those questions, can you really say that? Can you repeat that? Is that grammatical? And then talking about auxiliary inversion, uh, that's social suicide. Well, they're at the very least alpha phenomena. As a general principle, people who are good at socializing don't go into social science. <laughs> right? I mean, social scientists, we're the people who had to do it consciously. Like... I don't understand why that person's reacting the way they are. I better sit down and consciously figure out what kind of factors led to this behavior pattern. That's the kind of person who becomes a social scientist. Ah, well, you know what you should really do if you're being responsible is you should have paper and pen or pencil on hand and then hand it to the person after they've exhibited behavior that you're unfamiliar with and tell them to describe what they did and why they did it. You can use this as, you know, primary source material for a paper later to be written. It may get you some that's, primary that's source. That's the point. <laughs> it may get you some primary source material. It will not get you a date. <laughs> One of the things that we, we read in connection to this article, there was a write-up in a blog by a, psych a psychology student. No, a psychologist or psychology student. Somebody from uh, Stanford, uh, you know, the junior university south of Berkeley, um, and this is Melody Dye. And so she writes about a paper that she and Michael Ramscar co-authored. And uh, I, I found this particular quote interesting. So uh, last month, Michael Ramscar and I, I'm speaking as Melody right now, published a seven-experiment cognitive psychology article, which uses careful experimentation and extensive corpus research to make something of a mockery of one piece of intuitive linguistic theorizing that has frequently been cited as evidence for innate constraints. Near the end of the piece, we take up a famous Steve Pinker quote and show how a simple Google search contradicts him. 
<laughs> Amusing as it is, can we consider Google to be a reliable source of information since many Google hits lead to Wikipedia, which can be edited by me? <laughs> I will edit anything to read however I want on Wikipedia. Don't don't encourage the trolls. Anyway, um, I don't think it matters whether or not Google's reliable because Chomsky's actually taken it to a higher level. Because One of the things that I read in conjunction with this article, was someone pointed out that Chomsky's competence performance distinction makes it easy for them to discredit any kind of naturally occurring data. And so when a corpus linguist comes along and tells a syntactician that 97.4% of 17 million Google hits disagree with the syntactician's own grammaticality judgment, thus invalidating their theory, uh, the syntactician just goes performance error and they go on their <laughs> merry way and this is all just another variation of the mantra you, you have to put your faith in the theory while while Google and Wikipedia have difficulties even the brown corpus or any of those other corpora a real syntactician doesn't care we have historical precedent too people have been pointing out the problems with grammaticality judgment since at least the 60s there have been numerous psycholinguistic experiments showing that grammaticality can judgments are socially constructed, basically. But at the end of the day, the reaction that most syntacticians have to these studies is not to read them or ever cite them. And so the the amount of, of actual influence any of this will have, if we, if we go on past precedent, the amount of influence any form of evidence is going to have is going to be effectively zero. Yeah, I agree. There may be some local improvements in certain certain segments of, of the linguistic community, but overall, yeah, you're right. So to me, the, the most practical value of this whole debate is uh, one of the things that I read, which is this phrase, bathtub theorizing. And that is an incredibly devastating mm. rhetorical comeback when you have nothing better to say. It's right up there with Yod Dropper. <laughs> so. uh, I like it. All right. We need, we need to move on to another topic because I just got this one off on the SpecGram ticker. All right. So this just in. Apparently, two different languages can coexist in the same society. It's kind of wild, but I want to explain this. All right. So on March 3rd, 2011, an article appeared in New Journal of Physics which refutes an earlier claim that two different languages cannot coexist in the same society. Uh, linguists, of course, have had their own ideas about this, but now that the physicists and mathematicians have weighed in, the question is finally settled. Uh, naturally, linguists the world over should be grateful that these real scientists <laughs> took time out of their busy schedules to settle a little language matter for the field of linguistics. What should we send these guys? I mean, a bottle of wine, a uh, champagne? Uh, just uh, a dozen black roses in an exploding container. <laughs> <laughs> Doing computer models of language interaction is even worse than the, the self-directed grammaticality judgments uh, by the syntacticians. It's just this is ridiculous. And mathematicians should know better because they know that they can go out and get proof by example by just going to, you know, one of the multilingual places in the world, like, you know, maybe India. It's kind of big. Maybe they heard of it. And just go there and see, in fact, multiple languages can survive in one society. Oh, so your theory is that India exists. Yes. I'm going to stand by that because uh -huh. I believe it to be true. All right. Well, that's pretty audacious. So uh, one of the things I was wondering about, wondering about when I was reading this article is um, especially this, this one. Uh, so this recent article is referring to an earlier article where the claim was two languages can't coexist in the same society. I was wondering, you know, what kind of time frame 
are they working with here? I mean, if it's, let's say, 700 billion years, yeah, probably <laughs> two languages in one society, they're not going to be speaking those same two languages uh, 700 billion years from now. Uh, but will they still be speaking two languages? Or will they become a mixed language? Hmm. Mm. Or will they become, or will they be, they be speaking the daughter languages? Or will there just be microbes left on the little burnt-out sender of the planet that they were on? My theory is that it'd just be a version of Welsh. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, I was simply kind of wondering because I, I saw one of those news announcements and, of course, they did not include the mathematical basis of this. I like to say it that way because it lets me pretend that if they had, I would actually understand it and I wouldn't. But <laughs> it, it left me curious about to what extent they were able to model the kind of reflexive or recursive effect that happens when the language policy of the situation is affected by the speakers having read news releases about these physicists' studies. Mm. <laughs> right. And so if you have, if, if you look at the U.S., for example, if you have a bunch of people who have read the first article that says two languages cannot coexist, then they're suddenly running around screaming about how Spanish or Latvian is going to kill English because Finally. Spanish, the incidence of, of Spanish is is not zero, you know, and that's going to mean English is going to disappear. And then you can get various political reactions to that, which actually create a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas other people who read the second article get more laissez-faire about it, also creating kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy situation, right? Is anyone doing the third study where they modeled the readership of the other two studies. <laughs> Bill, that's just so much bathtub theorizing because you're assuming <laughs> no, that people, is it? because because you're assuming that people in the United States actually read articles that have anything to do with physics. Ooh. But but you're you're sitting Sound there point. sort of imagining this hypothetical situation in which it is possible to not have hypothetical situations, right? Hmm. Recursion that way lies madness. <laughs> I think that you guys are I, you're getting a little bit far afield of the most important matter here, which is that it's the physicists here that are helping to elucidate things. All right, they're they're the ones that are. It's a total power grab by the physicists. That's obvious. Oh well, what I was wondering is that you know it's fantastic that the physicists have finally settled this question of bilingualism for us. But what I want to know is why you know if they, if they have a free moment. Why can't they settle some other linguistic arguments for us, like, you know, poverty of the stimulus? Um, I'm sure that they have mathematical models that could have something to bear on, you know, whether or not there's actually universal grammar. You need to rein it in or I'm going to beat you to death with an eigenvector. <laughs> you like your mathematical models so much. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, there's the economic principle that bad money drives out good, right? Linguistics has had faux mathematics for ages, and so I suspect that probably crowds out real mathematics over time. I mean, it. it so that's the source it, of your. Even, that's the source of your earlier argument that uh, you have to you have to model what what people are reading and thinking about before the put it into the inputs of 
the rest of the system. So it doesn't matter what the physicists do and what their math is because linguists are, have already turned against math or don't know good math. No, no, it. it's just it, it doesn't matter what the mathematicians do. Uh, uh, a decent linguist, true. yeah, uh, a decent linguist can sit down, take an argument that he or she was going to make anyway, like. I don't think this happens because this particular motivation prevents X from happening or whatnot. Replace all of the major terms with Greek letters, put in some mm. faux mathematical symbols, and then publish an article with stuff on the page that looks mathy, then sit back, looks satisfied, and refuse to read any of the mathematician's articles. And so there you go. And you're suggesting there's something wrong with this? You should keep in mind that, you know, part of my graduate program was to take a class in faux mathematics. I considered myself kind of a faux mathematics buff. And what did you, what kind of faux mathematics did you learn? Uh, you know, I could, I could explain it to you, but really it would kind of be above your heads. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, when you, when you include some of like the lambda and psi vectors and you apply this to uh, complex equations, with you know numerators and denominators, and uh, and then the, you you know and then you take into consideration the chiasmus principle. Uh, honestly, I mean, it really wouldn't be profitable for me to explain it to you. Uh, you just wouldn't be able to kind of comprehend it if you understand. And I'm sorry that that's why that that's the way it is, but it is. You do you do remember that uh, I accidentally made the mistake of studying math and getting a degree in mathematics before I went on to linguistics. You know, there's a common misconception that mathematicians, uh, due to their background, are actually able to understand faux mathematics, uh. and that's really not the case. It's kind of like there's actually a parallel within linguistics. You know, people think that, hey, you know, I speak English, therefore um, I can make judgments about this syntactic argument. It's just not that way, and it's similar with mathematicians. You know, we kind of tolerate your presence, and that's fine, but I I think uh, what I'm trying to say is stay stay put in your place and stay out of faux mathematics where the real linguists are. I'm going to get my eigenvectors now. <laughs> Stab you in the eyes. <laughs> Don't they sell those at Ikea or something? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for language news. Now another word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Kevin Bickelson Foundation. You've got questions, but I paid to be first in line. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. It's time again for Ask Mr. Linguist. Uh, do we have Mr. Linguist on the phone there? Hello. Yes, here I am. You are pleased to make my acquaintance. Uh, yes, we are. Uh, indeed. Uh, are you ready for this week's question? Very ready. Please read. All right, Trey, give it a read. All right, so this time we have a letter from 10-year-old Kevin Bickelson of New Haven, Connecticut. And Kevin writes, My mom always uses the expression lukewarm when I ask her if she loves daddy or not. But why isn't there a Luke cool or Luke hot or Luke cold for that matter? Mr. Linguist? Oh, yes. It's a very good question because I have a... Yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off there, Mr. Linguist, but we're having a lot of trouble understanding you. Uh, there appears to be some static on your end. Are you hearing that? Ah, static. It's interesting work. It goes back to Sumerian brothel where I used uh, no, to... No, 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 Mr. Linguist, really, we're having trouble understanding you. You have us on speakerphone or something? Of course. This is television, no? No, uh, no, no, Mr. Linguist, it's a radio show, and we're the ones doing the recording. Oh, I am understanding. 
this is no need for formal tuxedo either. Uh, one, one second, please. Okay, is better now? Oh yeah, that's much, much better. Okay, very good. Is figure out now. Please to read question again. Kevin writes, My mom always uses the expression lukewarm when I ask her if she loves daddy or not. But why isn't there a Luke cool or Luke hot or Luke cold for that matter? Mr. Linguist? Ah, this interesting question, Kevin. I'm much pleased you're asking as this ties directly into my research. It turns out the expression lukewarm dates back to Lukos Tokotopoulos, a merchant of dubious origin who probably sold expensive window furnishings to young boys in the 6th century BCE. He had ritual to take scalding hot bath just before leaving on sailing trip. So hot that the boys he would sail to called the water uh, Thermotica Luconica, or lukewarm. Uh, that is what Lukos Tokotopoulos considered to be warm. Uh, this meaning persisted many years and was passed from Greek to Latin to all its tutor languages and from there to who knows how many. However, last use of term for any known language is 732 CE, after which time usage abruptly stopped. No one knows why. It has been theorized that perhaps it became enormously unpopular in every single language all at once and term was put to death. Uh, gone to 1977 and there is a new film, movie film debuting called Star Wars. It began as a sequel to popular Paul Newman filmed Cool Hand Look, but script changed hands many times and became sci-fi action-adventure film. And so they abandoned the original title uh, film, which was Warm Hand Look, and it became Warm Look. This, of course, had to be changed to look warm for obvious reasons. A script floated from producer to producer, and no one was liking it, until one day, unfortunately, typo changed title to Look Wars. Look Wars. Now they are all liking it. And script changed, and eventually look was changed to stars, and old title lukewarm was used to describe so-so reaction to idea. Now also used for liquid that is not quite warm, I hear. Uh, and of course it follows that there can be no look cold, or look hot, or what have you. These are having no meaning. Thank you for beautiful question. Huh, ah, I didn't know that. Uh, thanks very much, Mr. Linguist. And if you have a question for Mr. Linguist, send your questions to mrlinguist at specgram.com. Well, that took a little longer than I expected. I'm back. What did I miss? That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Oh, come on. Tune in next time for some more largely nonsensical banter tenuously related to the language. Thanks for listening.